When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Today on the Family Brain, I'll be talking with Benta Sims, LPC, which is a licensed professional counselor. Benta is a counselor in the Northern Virginia area, and she specializes in issues around pregnancy and perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. So I know we hear a lot in the news and just out in the world about postpartum depression and things to look for in that. And what I love about what Benta talks about is that it can show up in so many different ways. We hear a lot about, you know, the mom who maybe shuts the windows and stays in the dark room and won't go out and won't shower. And that is a reality for some people. But there are also um, other ways that issues postpartum can show up. And I like that she describes what that can look like so that we can all keep our eyes open for ourselves and also for the people we love. I know personally, after I had my first child, I got so anxious. I am super, or I always say I'm type A in recovery, so I'm trying not to be this way, but I was taking all my um, type A nature and directing it towards parenting. And I, I, in retrospect, I see that I had a lot of anxiety, which is exhausting. And so couple a lot of anxiety plus not getting a lot of sleep. And it's very, very challenging. So I wish I had had this information back then and wish I had known what to look for in myself. Um, and I think it's a much more common challenges that women face postpartum than we realize. And I'm hopeful that by talking about it more and by getting information out more, we can recognize these things in ourselves and support one another better. So I hope you enjoy Benta. She has a lot of great information to share. Benta, thank you so much for joining me today on The Family Brain. I'm so excited to hear about all the awesome work you're doing. Well, thank you, Megan. I'm a little bit nervous. I've not done this before, but I'm very excited to talk about my area of work because it so impacts moms and dads and families. 
Yes. No, it's huge. I actually, I don't think I shared this with you, but I worked in a OBGYN office. I'm also a, um, I'm a licensed social worker and um, I worked in an OBGYN office for a while and it, it opened my eyes to some of the different things going on with women postpartum that I didn't realize, you know, because I had my experience, but I didn't know there was such a range of different experiences. I mean, it makes sense, obviously, because everybody's so unique, but... Um, yeah, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about yourself first and just sort of tell me a little bit about your own background, how you became a, a LPC licensed professional counselor and um, just how you were led to this type of work. Sure. I, um, so I am a career changer. I didn't always work in this field. And it was my uh, introduction and experience as a new mom that connected me with the mental health field. So in uh, 1987, our daughter was born, and I had a wonderful pregnancy. Uh, We didn't know she was a girl, but she was much loved, um, even while pregnant, and we were very excited and uh, had been planning to start a family, so everything was just, you know, amazing. And then um, there was a huge screeching halt record scratch of trauma that occurred during her birth, and um, it really set us off into a very uh, complicated and complex postpartum period. And uh, so suffice it to say that both she and I experienced um, pretty severe um, physical traumas during her birth. And what I came to understand was also emotional trauma as a result of that birth. And the year progressed after she was born. And uh, we struggled with breastfeeding. Uh, She was such an amazing little girl, uh, little baby. And uh, we had support and uh, no family in the area, but they came and supported us and friends. And then I went back to work when she was about 10 weeks old and just really continued to struggle with some of these physical effects of her delivery. And what I didn't understand then, of course, was really the trauma related to her delivery. Mm -hmm. And so I began to experience really severe anxiety uh, panic attacks. I would be sitting at my desk at a job that I absolutely loved and would experience a panic attack. And I didn't even know what that was. I went to the emergency room a couple of times. I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, and it was really, really difficult to find any other moms to talk to about this experience. I tried to go to new mom support groups and just looked around the room and compared myself and my experience with my daughter to their beautiful, amazing experiences. And we couldn't breastfeed, and I was not happy in my own skin, and my body physically was struggling, and my daughter had some complications. And so I just felt like if I checked the boxes of failure, I could really check all of them. I I failed at delivery. It didn't go. The, the women, my peers in my community had their babies at home. <laughs> oh, yes. I had a very medicalized delivery. Not yes. that I was a 
uh, breastfeeding. I went back to work in a job that I loved and I couldn't focus, I couldn't concentrate. Um, I could barely put sentences together. So anxious and hypervigilant from the trauma, but I didn't know that then. Yes. Now, it's amazing the amount of pressure we put on ourselves as women, just right from the beginning. I feel like almost the delivery process is an entry point into the competitive world of parenting where you start to compare yourself on every front, and it's just yeah. exhausting and not healthy. I and know, I mean, it's, it's, So in my day, 1987, when my daughter was born, it absolutely was the delivery process. What I've seen in working with my clients moms now who are pregnant, it moves back even into the pregnancy, um, you know, wearing just the right organic clothes and, you know, doing just the right yoga moves. Right. And it's, it's really amazing the pressure that's now moved down into the pregnancy time mm. period. And it's hard because so, a lot of times people are still, when they're pregnant, many people are still young enough where that still is that, I keep telling people I'm over 40 which I love because I care less and less about what other people have to think and have to say. But when you're pregnant, a lot of times you're still in a pretty vulnerable age range also for, you know, just worrying about what other people are thinking. Not, not of course, that's not across the boards, but it was true for me at least. Right. And what we know is that you're vulnerable hormonally for depression and anxiety. Mm. So, so you take that along with sort of the psychological developmental phase of being impressionable about other people's opinions, um, and it just festers. And of course, now we know so much more about the importance of assessing for depression and anxiety during pregnancy. And so, anyway, so back to uh, just to finish my story, so you kind of know where we ended up, because I don't want to leave you at that dark place. No, please, um, yes. Um, so I ended up uh, going on a medical leave from work when my daughter was about six months old because I was so debilitated by these panic attacks and anxiety. And anyone with untreated panic attack or anxiety is going to become depressed, and then I became depressed. And, of course, I felt guilty. I blamed myself. I thought I'd done everything wrong. Um, I failed at everything, and at that point, I was saying things to my husband like, let me just find you a good wife and mother for our daughter, and I'm just going to leave, because obviously I can't do this. The wife you knew is gone. She's the, she is, the aliens have come and taken her brain, and I have no <laughs> idea who she's become. Yes, I mean, yes. He didn't even know who I he, he had known me since I was 17, and at this point I was 28. And I couldn't function, literally could not function. So I'm home, and I felt very isolated because I couldn't really talk to the moms around me. And I started to have not only these thoughts of panic, but then I started having these really intrusive thoughts of harming my daughter. And um, she had a little changing table underneath a little window in her bedroom, and I would have these images of opening the window and rolling her out. And our little house sat up on a hill, and I could just see her rolling down the hill. Mm -hmm. And those thoughts were so upsetting to me of that I stopped changing her on that little changing table. And uh, to my credit, I was able to share these thoughts with my husband um, because many women don't. 
don't share these thoughts. And I was able to share them, and of course they were alarming to him, but really uh, he just wanted to figure out what was going on. So I'm home with my daughter. It's an afternoon. I wish I could remember the day because it's such a just an amazing shift in my life. Uh, and I have the TV on to hear some adult conversation. And I have the Phil Donahue show on. And Phil Donahue was like followed by Oprah Winfrey. And so he was like the Oprah Winfrey of that day. And um, he had on as his guest one of the founders of an organization called Depression After Delivery. And I was watching and listening to this woman talk about her personal experience and founding this organization. And I just remember literally standing still, thinking, oh, my gosh, this is what I have, depression, anxiety, and then I kept thinking, wait, Becky, you're like the happiest person people know. You've not struggled, you know, with your mood before or anything, and so I watched the entire show just taking notes, and at the end of the show, there was an 800 phone number to call. This is the older days. Right. <laughs> there was no website. <laughs> Um, there was an 800 phone number to call. Um, I wrote that down. My first phone call was to my husband at work. Mind you, I've been calling him. This poor man, I would call and beg him to come <laughs> because I was so afraid I would hurt our daughter. Yeah. This poor man would leave the office and say, I don't know what's wrong with my wife, but I've got to go home. He'd come home. Again, this was before the internet where you could work at home. Right. So, um, Anyway, so my first phone call was to him to say, I think I know what's wrong with me. And he said, well, what is it? And I said, I just watched the show. This woman was on. It's called Postpartum Depression. And he said, wow, I've never known you were depressed, but okay, what do we do? And I said, well, there's an 800 phone number. I'm going to call it. So I called it, and I got a phone call back from the woman on the show. And uh, she mailed me, snail mail, again, this is before the internet. <laughs> I know, I have there to get my kids to listen to this. They're like, what did people do? <laughs> yeah. She mailed me the information uh, about resources and just about postpartum depression. And uh, she told me that there was a support group that met in Northern Virginia, where we were living and still live, run by a woman who had experienced postpartum depression, anxiety, stuff following the birth of two of her children, and she had recovered and was running these peer support groups out of her house. So she gave me her name and phone number. So I called that woman, and she said, yeah, I'm doing it. Come on, here's when the group meets. So I went to this support group, and it still gives me chills because Women drove from far away as like an hour and a half, two hours away to get to this support group. It was the only support group in the Washington, D.C. area at that time. And I walked in and we sat down and we started to talk about our experience of pregnancy, delivery, postpartum. And I felt like I had come home. I felt like for the first time, and my daughter at this point is like seven or eight months old now. For the first time, I could talk about what I really was experiencing and listen to other women say, me too. My story's a little bit different. Here's what I went through. And I 
coming home from the first support group and my husband greeting me. And he said, so how was it? And I said, it was just incredible. And he said, so what did you do? And I said, we, we sat around and we talked about how miserable and sad and overwhelmed and anxious and depressed we felt. And he said, and that was helpful? <laughs> and I said, it was so helpful. And from that point on, I thought to myself, if women like me, and I'm educated, and I have support, and I have resources, mm-hmm. um, if women like me can struggle and slip through the cracks, then how much more pervasive this must be. And so I got connected, actually, with a psychiatrist. So this is 1988 a psychiatrist who did therapy at that point. I didn't even know what therapy was, never been to a therapy session. Um, started to work with her. She was a mom of two boys, and just an incredibly validating and safe, beautiful presence. And um, we talked about my experience, and most of the time at first I just sat with a tissue box in my lap and cried. And... The reality, though, was I couldn't function every day. And so she asked if I would consider taking medication, and I told her absolutely not. I've not really taken as much as, you know, maybe an antibiotic once in my life or something like that. I don't want to. And so we set a time frame of like six or so weeks later saying we'd revisit it, and I still was struggling, and I wanted to go back to work, and I just wanted my life back, and I wanted to be able to be able to go to the grocery store without having a panic attack. And so I started on Prozac, which had really just come on the market, and it made an incredible difference. And for about the next seven or eight months, I met with her and took my Prozac and really became a stronger person than I've ever been. And boy, was I on fire then to start talking about this experience. And so my husband, who's an attorney, uh, we go to some gatherings of his attorney colleagues, and I would start talking to anyone who would ask me how I was doing, because they all knew something was wrong. Um, I would start talking about this. Do you know you can have depression and anxiety and panic attacks and PTSD following the birth of a baby? No one was talking about that then. So, um, and really anyway, even so, when I had my kids, I had my youngest son in, uh, what is it? 2007. And I experienced what I now recognize. And I had already been to graduate school for social work, was working in the therapy field, you know, working with families. And I experienced, um, anxiety as well. And I was like, well, that's not what happens. What happens is depression. You know what I mean? So I thought, like, yeah. well, this is just who I am. Maybe I just have always been this way, and I just didn't recognize it before. You know, I was too distracted by being at work, and so now I'm noticing it. Or so, you know, you make up reasons why it just can't be true because you've never heard about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what we know now is it's not just depression, and it's not just postpartum. So, um, so yeah. Can you and talk? So I reco- Sorry, I go recover. ahead. I just want to finish so Sorry. you know. I recovered and uh, went on and actually uh, got pregnant again. And uh, got pregnant and with the support 
size of identical twin boys Ooh. and um, thought for sure I would never live through that experience. And not only did I live, but I thrived, putting in place all of these new tools that I had learned. And um, I went on, raised my family, and once they got into middle school, I got very active with a group of other women who I'd been introduced to, and we started a model for peer support in uh, Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Northern Virginia, and so I led a peer support group for almost 12 years, from 2002 for till about 12 years, I think I did it, and then I was in graduate school, and so I sat with my kids when I was in graduate school. While they did their homework, I did my homework, and they taught me how to do PowerPoint presentations, and um, it was so much fun, and then um, fast forward to I graduated and worked as a school counselor until all my kids were in college, and then I started working in private practice in 2008, and um and I'm on the board of an organization called Postpartum Support Virginia. And I've been active with Postpartum Support International. I mean, this experience has changed my life. It's, it's my post-traumatic growth. And um, it has, I'm grateful while that year was hell, I'm, I'm grateful for the people it brought into my life, for how it strengthens my marriage, for what I learned and how I grew. Um, so that's my post-traumatic growth, and that's why I do the work that I do. I love that, post-traumatic growth. That I, You yeah. don't hear that statement very often, but I love that because it's so true. I mean, so many of the people I talk to on this podcast, whatever work they're involved in with helping other people is typically from a place of hurt that they experienced, that they you know, had this post-traumatic growth from and then can reach out to help someone else. So while it feels miserable in the moment and you would never wish for it, it's, it's, uh, it's just so special how you can reach back and sort of help other people. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep thinking that's about, my... sorry, <laughs> what's that? That's my work. That's why yeah. I love it. Yeah. Because I know, I know that these experiences whether we call them, uh, you know, disorders or illnesses, these experiences during pregnancy and postpartum are treatable and women recover. And the amazing thing, like I love the title of your your podcast, The Family Brain, because it's so important, you know, the, to impact, you know, during pregnancy and postpartum for wellness and healing, that just sets the family on such a different trajectory. Um, so. And it seems like, I mean, along with, you know, how do you breathe when you have a baby? This is needs to be provided to people that these are some things that can happen. And I think even exactly. within the medical field, doctors don't necessarily want to, well, that sounds sad, or we don't want to make people upset. This is supposed to be a happy time. But it's like, you need right. to be prepared, almost like when you're teaching a child to drive. You don't want to, you know, just assume it's always going to be great. How do you teach them if something comes up? How do you get help or how do you respond to a challenge? Um, and and I've heard doctors talk about that, that, you know, oh, that's kind of a bummer. We don't really want to talk about that, you know, but it's right. a, more of a bummer to not have the information and to feel totally isolated and alone with what's going on with you. Right. And yeah, parenting is 
an antelude and anxiety disorder, which is what we call it now, because uh, we have to give it some kind of name, is, is they're thought to be the number one complication of wow. pregnancy and childbirth. And so, you know, new moms, pregnant moms get screened for so many things. And what we're asking and hoping for is can moms also be screened for depression and anxiety during pregnancy? Because, gosh, if it can be addressed then, then you're set up for, uh, you know, so much more of a strength-based approach in the postpartum period. So, um, yeah. I'm thinking too, is I love your story about, I can just picture you listening to Phil Donahue and watching the show. And I love how it's come full circle because I'm guessing there's going to be at least one person who's listening to this podcast. I mean, anywhere in the world, that's the crazy part is this podcast is listened to in, I don't, I don't know how many different countries, but lots of different countries and is going to hear this and get resources and get help. And I just yeah. think that's so amazing yeah. how, you know, you've brought it full circle and you're able to to give this information to other people from your experiences. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I wonder if you I, could I, talk a little more. Sorry. <laughs> I wonder if you could talk a little bit more. I know you spoke a little bit about the interplay between depression and anxiety and how these things it's almost like we talk about them as separate entities, but they really play off of each other. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like and, and what we're learning about how depression and anxiety kind of weave together? Sure, sure. So what we know now, sort of the name postpartum depression, is just one piece of the possibility of range of mood experiences that new moms can go through, and not just in the postpartum period, but during pregnancy. And so postpartum depression is kind of, you know, one piece, and the umbrella is now called perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And underneath that is depression and anxiety during pregnancy, depression and anxiety in the postpartum period, uh, perinatal panic disorder, which can happen during pregnancy and postpartum, in the sort of intrusive thoughts, um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, perinatal bipolar disorder, and then, of course, postpartum psychosis, which is not postpartum depression or anxiety. It is a medical emergency in and of itself. Neither is like the baby blues, which is extremely common and occurs to, for many women, I think up to like 80, 85% of women uh, in the first two weeks following the birth of a baby. And so, you know, depression and anxiety often go along. They come together. They're good friends. Um, the reality, though, um, women, especially in the postpartum period, is the depression doesn't look like a typical major depressive disorder. Um, moms are not, not moms are moms are getting out of bed they're taking care of their babies they um are trying to do all these things they normally do if not even more and what they're experiencing is this heightened hypervigilant sense of anxiety worry about themselves worry about the baby um a, a lot of it is related just to this really huge um uh, that uh, impact to one's identity as a woman, 
certainly didn't feel depressed. I felt highly anxious. Yes. And um, and so it just looks different. However, I believe that, as I mentioned, if you don't treat the anxiety, then that is going to become overwhelming and debilitating, and you're not going to be able to engage in your everyday life. And that's going to become depressing. Right. Um, it's exhausting it's to be that hypervigilant. You know, it's, it's exactly from my own personal experience, <laughs> you know, I just, I, and I think that's the thing. I'm so type A, I always say I'm type A in recovery because it's like, oh, it's too tiring to be this way. But I feel like it just, it was fine when I was just taking care of myself. But when it was time to take care of other people, I just, it, it you go into overload and it's not sustainable. Right. Well, and that brings me to, you know, when we think about the risk factors for these um, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders to occur, you mentioned, you know, your type A personality. I had a type A personality. Mm-hmm. Are you also in recovery? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, what, what we've learned about this anxiety and depression in pregnancy and after childbirth is that there's no one specific predictor or risk factor. And so we look at it in like these three domains. Um, and one domain is the sort of internal psychological factors, personality traits, your perfectionist thinking, not yours per se. But mom, no, you can say mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That would be accurate. I mean, really, when you list all of those things, that includes a lot of people. 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's, we're all, I mean, really, it almost sounds like, and this might be an overstatement, but that most people who are going to be pregnant or have a baby, this, you you would want to consider, are you at risk? Because this is very common. there's this message too for women that you can do it all. You can have a career, you can have a family, and of course you can do all of this. And it's and and you can, but it's not easy and you need support. No one can do it alone. Absolutely. I mean, no one can do no. it alone. And if you are, it's a lot and it's exhausting and again, probably not sustainable. You know, you it just everybody needs support and needs to not feel alone in whatever they're going through. You know, and same with the women admit to having these issues because it's, there's a lot of shame around this kind of thing because we're taught that it's a celebration. How could you ever be sad? Look at this beautiful child, you know, and it's, it's just, it's hard to admit that, that you're struggling also. That can be true. And also you are struggling. Yeah. There's so much shame in, as we started kind of our conversation in, during pregnancy and postpartum and the choices you make and what the expectations are on or what others' expectations are. And when that doesn't, those don't all get sort of matched up, there's so much shame. Um, I, I've had moms share with me, for example, that they breastfeed, they pump, they also formula feed, 
can feel shame around, you know, not having a complete natural childbirth or not exclusively breastfeeding or just feeling that. Yeah. One of the items that I talk with my clients about are the series of losses that come with being a mom. We can kind of open up their expectations and cultural expectations and, and um, you know, help them balance those and have more realistic, kind, compassionate thoughts and feelings yes. about themselves. Yes. And what's interesting to me, I'm just thinking back to the friendships I made when I first had my kids and the people that I could just let it all hang out with are the people I'm closest with still now. You know, it's just such a bonding experience to be able to say, this is what's going on and this is not what I thought it was going to look like. And I think it's sometimes hard to take that leap, you know, where you're kind of with somebody, oh, it's great. Everything's great. Okay. See you next time. You know, and it's just, I would just encourage people to try, you know, try, try to test out a relationship that you trust and see if you yeah. can kind of let it all hang out because it feels pretty good, you know, and those are the relationships right. that are going to carry you for the rest of your life because Absolutely. it just bonds you in a special way. And, you know, Megan, I think that's so important to do. It takes time. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, moms talk about kind of like the speed dating. How do I sort of put a test thought out there? in the conversation with another mom and see how it goes. You right. Know? Um, it's important to do and to build our our support system, not only during pregnancy and postpartum, but you've got children who are a little bit older, right? Yes. They're, mm-hmm. Sounds like they're, what, 10? Uh, a 10-year-old, um, 9, and 6. Yeah, so it's important even for to have support to raise a 10-year-old. Right. Right? And what that experience is like as a mom, as a family, um, I know that I so benefited from a few safe relationships with other women. And frankly, I'm going to say that my husband and I benefited with some safe relationships with some other couples mm-hmm. who we could talk with about what is it like to have teenagers. Yes. You know, there's not, there's not like, you know, a, a playbook or a, an instruction book that comes with our children that gets born with them, tied to their toes, you know, right. that says when they come to you and want to stay out till midnight, you know, once they get their driver's license, here's what you do. And so being able to talk about these experiences, whether it's that your child is six months old, six years old, 16 years old, is really important. Yes, yes. No, I agree. And I think it also, we were talking about dads, you know, initiating conversations with your partner around, you know, this is what I'm going through. Because like you were saying, it's hard even to talk to the person maybe closest to us or that we're with the most because, you know, you kind of recognize something has changed and you might not even be able to put words to it, but sometimes just trying to start putting words to it. You know, the more I think if we don't have the language for it, it can be difficult to express. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It can be difficult to express what you're going through, but just try, you know, and just hopefully the person can be patient with you as you try to piece it together. I agree with you. And one of the things I love when you say you don't, you don't even know what you don't know, right? Right. You don't have the language for it. And um, I'm going to give a shout out to one of the books that I use. It's by John and Julie Gottman. And it's been out there a while 
Um, it's called Man Baby Makes Three. And uh, he has different psychoeducational groups. People are trained to do his a book like that or something else gives a couple is the language. And so it's hard to talk about, as you said, if you don't even know right. what you need to talk about. So, um, so anyway, his book gives lots of great practical information and great language for yes. how to do this. Yeah, I love, I follow them on Facebook and they just, every day, they have just amazing resources for families, the Gottman Institute. Yeah. It just, I followed yeah. it because I knew somebody who was doing um, therapy with that, that approach. And, but just, it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving because it always has something just relevant to family life. Yeah. Yeah. And it, their book is really wonderful. Okay. It's out in paperback. I think it's fairly inexpensive at this point. Could probably get it used. And uh, again, it gives a language. Right. So. Well, I'll make sure I link and, the resources you're mentioning in our show okay, notes um, and so people can, you know, find these different resources because it's, it's a, uh, it's a lifeline, you know? Yeah. What I know one of the things we wanted to talk about was just what we're learning about what women, what helps women feel better when this, when, if you're recognizing this is something that's going on with you or that you might anticipate in your pregnancy, what are some of the things that, are showing to be helpful to people? So what comes up for me right away when you say that is social support. Um, so Postpartum Support International and Postpartum Support Virginia, uh, survivors of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders who have recovered, gone on and gotten training and support, and lead three peer support groups. And they meet across the United States and actually across the world. Um, and so social support, just like I experienced, where women can talk about really what what they're going through in a safe, non-judgmental group. Um, so I think social support has come up actually in hard research as being really key to women. Um, healing through this process. Um, another piece that we know is, and this is hard to ferret out, especially when we're talking about new moms, is sleep. Mm. So sleep is difficult when you have a breastfeeding, even a bottle feeding baby. Um, but a lot of my work is working with my clients and their partners and family members, whoever is part of their system, to figure out a way that we can you know, get mom sleeping, um, you know, for about four or five hours straight. Yeah. And I don't mean like in the first night home, but, you know, fairly soon into this process. Because sleep is how the brain processes its junk and its stuff. And it, you know, I, I it's so hard to, to know what's going on when mom isn't sleeping. And I want to put a footnote there to talk about a different piece related to sleep, but so what I focus on is sleep, healthy nutrition, you know, when you sit down to breastfeed or bottom feed baby, um, you know, put the phone down, enjoy snuggling and eye gaze, but set yourself up with a healthy snack and water that can sit right next to you, so you are feeding yourself because you are feeding baby and you're feeding your family, essentially. Um, 
then um, time to sell a little bit. I'm not talking about, you know, going away for an entire weekend. I mean, just can you get 15 or 20 minutes to yourself where someone else is holding the baby and you can just sit down and breathe and stretch and write a little bit about what's going on just to get a pause. Um, and then for some moms, talk therapy um, can be really helpful, and for some moms, medication. So Postpartum Support Virginia has put together what we call the Path to Wellness, and if you link our website, you can get to that. They're free. You can print them out, um, and they include self-care, social support, talk therapy, and medication. Is it okay with you if I share that on my um, social media networks? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, Postpartum Support Virginia um, is uh, founded by Adrian Griffin. She's the executive director, and she is such a dynamic woman. And we have grown. She and I met each other many years ago when we were the only really two support groups going in the state of Virginia. And uh, we combined forces, and she started this nonprofit organization. And um, we now have our, our hope is to get support groups in every hospital across the state of Virginia where babies are born. And I don't mean new mom support groups. I mean support groups for moms who are experiencing, you know, struggles in their transition to um, motherhood. Yeah. So, I have a question. I'm just – I have a – friend or a few friends who have adopted have you seen any things like this with adoptive parents where they might not have physically birthed the child but they experience trauma through and and usually when you're adopting well not usually I'm my understanding is always you know there's a trauma because the the child is leaving their their biological family um what do you have support for that yeah any mom, whether a mom has given birth biologically to her baby or has adopted her baby or is fostering a baby, any mom can come um, to our support group. So the reality is, remember the three prongs. So it's not just the biochemistry, biophysiology related to um, you know estrogen and progesterone during pregnancy, which plummets immediately after delivery. Mom's psychological stuff, temperament, internal stuff, and situational stuff. And um, so, and, and a mom doesn't arrive at being a parent either biologically or through adoption or fostering a baby in a vacuum. I mean, she has an imprint herself of her own experiences, perhaps some of them traumatic, and her family has this imprint. You know, we know a lot now about the transgenerational, you know, impact of trauma. And so that mom doesn't arrive with a, a baby in a vacuum. So That's you know, great. I, I think they can absolutely experience postpartum depression and anxiety. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I and, you almost never hear about that. We see, we see it happen also in women who have gone through a lot of infertility treatment oh. and uh, a lot of miscarriages are uh, and and you know they they go through kind of uh, some small pain trauma of those losses and then finally get pregnant spending a lot of money on IVF treatment 
and they arrive often in my office and in our support group saying, I can't believe I feel depressed and anxious. I so wanted this baby. We have been through so much. I'm so angry that I can't have the experience I had hoped for. So, and then there's that shame and guilt. How come I'm experiencing this when I paid a lot of money and have been years in wanting to arrive at this place? Right. Well, it's interesting as you were talking about that, I'm picturing like, you know, that this frustration and that they, what they pictured is not what's happening. And I almost think we've been sold some goods from TV and marketing and movies that this is what you should expect because this is what we see in all of these images. And it's just kind of a sham, you know? I mean, it's like, it's not reality. It's a TV show or it's a movie. And it's useful, I think, to put images of reality out there so people don't feel so isolated or like they're doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's happening still, that the images are not realistic. And I think it's happening that women are starting to challenge those unrealistic images. Yes. And putting out there more realistic images. However, Many of my clients come in and they talk about, you know, I had all arranged on Pinterest what the colors were going to be in the baby's nursery, and I had, you know, the the baby shower or the baby sprinkle that took in all of those colors, and I had all of these plans for what I was going to do during my maternity leave and all of these expectations, and then, of course, none of that well, kind of matters, but none of it happens, right? right? And then mom is, is seeing other pictures of her friends on Facebook, of their baby sprinkles or baby showers, of their Pinterest put together, you know, nurseries, and they feel like they don't measure up. When I don't know that that, you know, it's people's highlights that get put on Pinterest. It's right. Not, more than a couple people to like the first intervention is get off of Facebook, get off of social media, because it obviously was triggering them. Every time they looked at it, they were, it's almost like they were looking for evidence that they didn't measure up or that they were doing it wrong. And if you're looking for that, you're going to find it. So just to go cold Turkey. And it's interesting. Even the response is they look at me like, what are you a monster? Like get off Facebook, you know, but it's really very helpful. And you just don't realize the impact it's having on your brain um, to be looking at these things. And and if you're already in a down spot and you're looking to, to, to prove your lack of worth, you, you're going to find evidence. Yeah. No one puts their low life right. on Facebook or Pinterest. I mean, it's only the highlights and that is not the true picture of that person. Right. But when you're in a vulnerable space, like pregnant and postpartum moms, the moms of young ones, until you kind of really integrate all of this, it feels like you're doing it wrong or not measuring up. And I agree with you. One of the things I do with my clients is say, let's just try it for 30 days. You know, don't get on Pinterest or Facebook. 
And sometimes you can even just take it off your phone because it's a lot more work to try and get on the computer and log in and whatever. Um, I have done that for myself, actually, at times. Just take it off the phone because it just makes it too easy to access. Yes, and that's what my clients do. It's actually correct. They just take it off because then if they're sitting there feeding the baby, they're not likely going to go. They're likely, most likely, going to have their phone, their smartphones. And if it's not on there, you're absolutely right. They're not going to go to their computer, mm-hmm. you know, boot up their computer and get on and look. Right. So I agree. So one of the things that you have talked about is just the the importance of the social support and people supporting moms and families going through having children and uh, over the spectrum of ages. Um, what do you see as the most way? So, so if I'm a friend or I'm a family member who really wants to support someone well, what would you say are things that we could do better? Um, it's interesting because I had... A woman called me, and uh, her uh, son and wife had just had a baby, and they were struggling, and she was going to go visit them in a different state, and had gotten my name, wasn't calling me for therapy, but just to reach out for how do I support them, and um, one of the things we talked about was um, really meeting them where they are, and uh, empowering them to use their strengths. So in this experience, um, this grandmother was going to um, see her daughter-in-law. Her daughter-in-law was breastfeeding but was having some struggles with breastfeeding. And this grandmother herself had, uh, it sounds like, exclusively breastfed her children well until like the age of two or something like that. I'm trying to remember her exact story. And so what she wanted to go tell her daughter-in-law was, you can do this, you know, it's doable, I, I, you know, I did it and it worked and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you can't do that. Yes. Because <laughs> um, she's already struggling around mm-hmm. it. So what we can say to her is, there, we, we live in an age and time where we have options for feeding babies. And if you... It works and it's better for you and your baby to pump or use a bottle of formula. You can still bond and connect and do skin to skin with a bottle fed baby. And um, if you want to keep breastfeeding, then we'll find a way to help you do that too. Wherever you are, whatever matters to you, um, you know, and that these decisions. Um, are really about your health and wellness as much, if not more, than the baby. Yes. And so, you know, really just supporting that new mom of, you know, giving her permission, giving her permission to keep breastfeeding if it's what works for her. It's the only thing she's holding on to that is going well, even though there's struggles to it. Okay, then let's make sure she's got, you know, a wonderful lactation consultant she's working with who can help and support her and a partner who gets that and family members who get that. Um, I don't want to make it just about breastfeeding. So really meeting them where they are, listening. How are you doing? Like face-to-face contact, put down the phone and just say, how are you doing? And then just saying, you know, many moms struggle in the postpartum period. Yeah. And, you know, the, the pictures you see out there aren't really 
international three messages. And, and I think this is so important to say to moms. It's what I found when I went to my support group 30 years ago. I knew I wasn't alone. I'm not alone in struggling. Yeah. And that goes across the boards to all. I mean, literally every topic I talk about on this podcast, that's the bottom line. No one wants to feel alone or like there's somehow the, the odd duck that just is doing this wrong, you know? And it's just, it's Correct. amazing to me that thread that goes through Correct. all of human experience. Correct. Correct. And then, so going to your next point, you're doing, you're, you're doing this wrong or not doing this wrong. The next phrase that Postpartum Support International reinforces is, this isn't your fault. You are not to blame if you are struggling. No one asks to feel depressed or anxious. I, I, I just believe, as someone who's experienced it, I never would have asked for it, and I didn't cause it, per se. So, um, so you're not alone. This is not your fault. You're not to blame. And then the third song is, with healthy support, you're going to be well. And so I think, you know, when we meet new moms, asking them, so how are you? You know, many new moms struggle. Whether you know, if you're not struggling now, fabulous. Just know you might. Right. <laughs> Wait for it. Wait, <laughs> right, it's such a huge transition, and you're you're not alone. And if you struggle, it's not your fault. There's help and support, and um, and I think also just really listening. Um, uh, you know, showing up, making a meal. Um, just being there alongside of someone, right? I mean, I know when I was so anxious, what I needed was not someone to have a long conversation with me, but just someone to be with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, when I was experiencing, you know, PTSD stuff, I just needed to know someone else was there. They didn't have to fix it for me or solve it for me. I just wanted them there. And so, you know, just showing up and saying, you know what? You do what you need to do. I'll hold the baby when you want to do something else, or I'll do the laundry, or whatever. Yes. I'm just here. Well, I'll just sit here and read. You let me know mm-hmm. what you need. Um, and so I, I think that's a way that we can help new moms. Um, and just encouraging them to take care of themselves. You know, there's so much um, sort of, myth of motherhood that revolve around you've got to be able to do it all it's got to go perfectly it's got to whatever 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 and just encouraging them that it's okay to do Mm -hmm. self-care if self-care is not selfish it's okay to say i need a little bit of a break here right it's okay to say i'm just going to take a walk around the block while you hold the baby i just need to breathe and get some fresh air um that's another thing I would encourage moms to do is just get outside when they can because it just feels so um, nature. I think it's just so amazing and wonderful. But yes. um, So coming alongside of them, asking how they are, listening, reminding them that they are wonderful moms. You're an amazing mom. And this is hard. And you're going to get through it. And I'm here to support you. You tell me what you need. And even if you don't know, that's not going to scare me. I'm just going to be here 
Yes. I love that. I love that. That's great. Those are all good. Good. It's it's making me wish I had made a point to do that for myself back in the day. I I did eventually. It just took longer than I I wish I wish I had done it earlier. But sometimes that's the other thing. I mean, look, I'm judging what I did. You know. I mean, it's like you. Right. Sometimes you're only ready when you're ready. So, um, right. well, which, which brings me to a, a wonderful uh, resource which wasn't around when my daughter was born thirty years ago. Of postpartum doula, and um, they are trained professionals who come into your space uh, and take care of mom and baby. And um, so, I what I've seen as as they have come much more into prominence is um, my clients are being given like gifts at their baby showers of so many hours of a postpartum doula. For example, mm, that's awesome. And they often are trained in uh, awareness of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, and they're trained in attachment, and they're trained in validating and normalizing and support. And they're there for mom. That's an awesome resource. Wonderful. That's great. Are they used often in Texas? Not that I'm aware of. I have, I do have a friend who is telling me about it, but I don't think it's all that common, as far as I know. Um, uh-huh. but I just, I'm thinking I didn't want to leave the hospital because I loved that I could push a button and somebody would help me, you know, and I wasn't going to get that when I went home. <laughs> I can remember being wheeled out of the hospital with my daughter, um, thinking to myself, you really aren't sending me home. Right. I look like I've got it all together <laughs> and, and well-educated and have my great husband here, but I really am, I'm clueless and I babysat, I was around children. Yes. I mean, I, I just was clueless. Yes. This is all brain cells of trusting myself went away. And this is another thing that I see is moms tend to lose kind of that internal trust of self. Um, you know, we tend to turn to all of the experts and all of the books and Dr. Google and all of this sort of stuff when all of that noise is going on and we forget really how to tune into okay, it's going to be okay. I can do this. I figured this out before. I'm not in this type of experience, but I got myself through this other experience. How did I do that? Right. What internal resources did I use? Um, so, and just intuition. I think we talk ourselves out of intuition so much, you know, that, that we do have that sense sometimes of what our specific child needs. And, um, and it's easy to talk yourself out of that because, well, that's not what the book said or that's not you know, exactly. what so-and-so is doing. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you were hoping you would be able to talk more about? Yeah, so I want to just put uh, sort of the little side footnote that I put, and you can decide if you want to add this okay. to the conversation. But one of the things I wanted to go back and mention that I footnoted was sleep. Yes. And so, um, you know, we have this, in my line of work, I have this space of differential diagnosis where it comes to um, postpartum OCD with intrusive thoughts or postpartum psychosis, which is not postpartum depression. It's a separate piece in and of itself. And so um, I think it's important to understand and differentiate uh, for the mom who says, I can't sleep, I really want to sleep. 
and the mom who says, I can't sleep when the baby sleeps at all. I try, but my mind is racing. And then the mom who says, I can't sleep when the baby sleeps. And you know what? That is fine with me because I am here to tell you I am getting so much done at night. I'm getting so much done when the baby naps. I've written this next proposal for my job. I've got this. I've done that. I've cleaned the house from top to bottom. It is so great, actually. I love not sleeping. So those three, sleep is such an interesting diagnostic tool and the language that goes along with that, um, that mom uses from my line of work is really helpful to note. And so in the mom who says, you know, I'm really struggling to sleep. I wish I could sleep. I'm really tired. And I do try and I'm able to doze a little bit. Okay, that's, uh, that's pretty normal, pretty typical. The mom who says, you know, I, I want to sleep. And when I try to sleep, my mind is racing and I'm on edge. I'm just waiting. I put the baby down and I just know she or he is going to wake up in 10 minutes. And I just am on edge. I just, I, I can't sleep. I want to sleep. That is a sign of postpartum anxiety. Mm. And then we go to the, the scenario of the mom who says to me, you know what, when the baby sleeps, I actually am really enjoying all the things I can get done. I've done this, I've done, and they're listing all of these, like, superwoman things that they're doing. That can be a sign of either an emerging bipolar mania or the start of psychosis, postpartum psychosis. So it's, it's important to kind of look at the spaces of sleep. Um, so I just wanted to mention that. And then related to like postpartum OCD with intrusive thoughts, which is what I have, and then postpartum psychotic thoughts, so, again, these are two very different experiences. And postpartum OCD uh, with intrusive thoughts is actually really common. And it's so relieving for moms to hear that what they're experiencing is normal. In fact, there's been some research that says intrusive thoughts or images in general happen to like 80-something percent of the population, not pregnant or postpartum. And when that was explained to me after my daughter was born, I thought, oh, that's what would happen to me when I was a kid and we would be driving on the highway. And I would see one of these trucks that had new cars attached to it by chains, you know, yes. like two deckers of new cars. And as a kid, I can remember thinking to myself, oh, dad, please drive around that truck because I would see this quick snap image of a chain coming undone and the car is rolling back at us. That's an intrusive thought, right. an image. What I, what I didn't know is that's what it was. I just had the thought, had the image, and then went on with life. It didn't interrupt. It didn't intrude. It just was there. And so, you know, 80-something percent of the population experiences these intrusive thoughts, images also. Um, in, in new moms, however, and actually new dads, experience it too. Um, the statistics are a little bit higher, like 90%. And 
they feel terrible about them, which is a good sign. Um, and they do everything they can to not have them happen or the distress. So, for example, in my experience, when I had the image of rolling my daughter out the window, I stopped changing her diapers there. Like, I wanted nothing to do with it. Right. <laughs> um, it so, was so upsetting to me. That's called ego dystonic. It's the thoughts were inconsistent with me, me to my core. And I would avoid them. I knew that they were upsetting. And treating that, treating those, is what's helpful is support and reassurance. Um, the ability to talk about them, and then really good cognitive behavioral therapy, or depending on how sort of entrenched they are, you know, like exposure, exposure and response prevention therapy, and sometimes medication. And sometimes they just go away as moms talk about them. You know, being able to kind of get the light of day to them takes the power out of them. Yes. So, um, postpartum psychosis is different in that what, and again, extremely rare, one in a thousand women experience it. What the research is showing is it is the manic phase of an emerging bipolar disorder. And um, moms in that situation have, you know, delusions, fixed false beliefs and hallucinations and bizarre behavior. And those thoughts to them aren't necessarily causing distress. They're very they make sense to them in their delusional world, and they're what's called egosyntonic. Um, they they feel like if they do what the intrusive thought is encouraging them to do, then things will be good and and well. Um, and so it's important in my line of work to be able to talk about this intrusive thought um, because they tend to um, again, moms don't have a language for them. Dads don't have a language for them. They tend to cause shame and guilt and to normalize them and to give a language for them can be really relieving for new moms. And one of the ways to kind of start the assessment really does relate to sleep. Sleep is such an important marker. Um, and so I just wanted to mention that. And I think it sounds important to take it seriously. I think a lot of times we, you know, oh, of course you're not getting sleep. You just had a baby. Like, you know, just kind of, it's kind of the jokey thing. Like, oh, you know, buckle up. You won't sleep again for 15 years, you know? And it's just, it sounds like what you're saying is that we need to take this more seriously. Like this is, it's like eating or breathing. It's a key part of being healthy. Exactly. Exactly. It's one of those, you know, self-help tools that is not selfish. Right. And so if I'm working with a mom pregnant, we talk about the importance of sleep and we pull in everyone we can who can hold a baby and help her so that she can get some sleep. We talk about tag teaming with dad. We talk or whoever else is in the house and we talk about, you know, when new moms say, but that's the only time I get to talk to my husband. It's okay. You know, there'll be more time. Right. <laughs> um, right now, the, the, the important piece is for you to get some sleep when, that's, when the baby sleeps. Yeah. And, and so we put together a plan for that. Yeah. You know, moms and dads haven't had a plan like that before. Right. You know, the, they just haven't had to negotiate in this way before. 
And I think that might be why, too, the type A person can be susceptible because I'm just thinking back for myself. I didn't accept help, really. You know, I, I got this. I got this. You know what I mean? But And I'm sure then I would complain that no one's helping me. But I also wasn't really receptive to it because I wanted to do it myself because that's pretty much how I had always done things, you know, and it, and it worked. It was fine. But this was a new experience where it wasn't working. And I do think that's kind of what our American culture encourages, mm-hmm. where do it yourself. You yeah. can do it yourself. And um, so that, and I experienced the exact same thing, Megan. It was so hard for me to ask for help. I thought that asking for help meant I was weak. And what I was able to reframe and how things were different after my twins were born was I had a village of support in every way, shape, or form. Um, yeah. And so, so what I learned was actually asking for help was a sign of strength. You know, to know this helps me and helps my family and helps my husband. That is way cool. That is a sign of strength. Yes. And I love so, that. and people are willing to help. You know, it's, it's, it's not like I asked for help and everyone says, well, that's really selfish of you. <laughs> In fact, they said, we'd love to help. Yes. When, where, what can we do? We'll come hold the baby. We'll come do this. Right. It was wonderful. So, and I realized it's not weak. Like the earth is not going to open up and swallow me if I ask for help. Right. I so, that. You're absolutely right. Well, one of the last questions I typically ask on the podcast, and we've talked about it a little bit is just this idea of self-care. And so in your work, you're helping so many people and, but it's critical for you to take care of yourself too. What are some things you do for your own self-care? Yeah. yeah so, and actually some of these things are helpful for new moms too. Um, so I think some things that I've learned, and I started doing this uh, actually with my therapist 30 years ago, and at that point, this was cutting-edge stuff, but just pausing, breathing, and doing some meditation, Um, and I don't mean sitting on a cushion or a bench for 45 minutes. I mean just pausing for 10 or 15 minutes a day and breathing and tuning into my breath and noticing my body and noticing my thoughts and letting them go and just coming back to my breath. So I do meditation every day. Um, I usually do meditation. I get into the office about an hour before my clients and usually do some meditation then related just to myself but also to the space I want to create in my work with my clients. I also use yoga, and, um, you know, there's a lot of research around meditation and yoga in terms of um, working with depression and anxiety and trauma, and so I use yoga. I am not fancy at it. It's not pretty when I do it. It's all about showing up on the mat and listening to my body and moving I also do it because I have a tricky spine, and so it keeps my back and core strengthened and healthy. So that self-care for me, especially when I sit all day for work or most of the day. Um, I have a dog. He's an old guy now, but I have an old rescue dog. And um, 
work. My husband and I take him for about a mile, two-mile walk. And in the evening when I get home from work, depending on the weather, of course, we usually walk in again for two to three miles. So walking and connecting with my husband is part of my self-care. I have a wonderful set of colleagues, um, and I work in private practice. However, we share office space, and there are six of us in the building here, and um, we get together every Tuesday for an hour of peer consultation, and that is not only my self-care professionally, but also personally, because they are all amazing women who are friends of mine. Uh, I have a small handful of really, really dear close friends, and uh, I get together with them, often to walk, <laughs> or for a cup of coffee or something, and, um, you know, we've known each other since our children were in preschool and have grown together and supported each other through losses and gains, um, and what else do I do? Exercise in general, I love to exercise. Read, I love to read and I love music, listening to music. I love listening to podcasts. <laughs> um, and so I am new to your podcast and have loved listening to it. Um, I love learning. So I actually, that's some that self care of mine. I actually really, coming to this field, I went to graduate school when I was 40 years old. So I as I said, this is my second career, and I just feel like I just love learning. I love learning about the brain and neurobiology and um, the importance of social connection. Um, I just love learning all of that. Um, what else do I do? I eat healthfully. I try to eat healthfully. Um, I'd say those are my self-help tools. I love that. And it's, I mean, again, it sort of goes back to, it's clear you've thought a lot about your self-care and you cover a lot of bases because sometimes when you have these hard experiences, that's what gives you all of these tools, right? You don't just kind of show up with all of these tools. Like I do all of these things. Um, but sometimes when you're in difficult spots, that's how you develop these tools. So I think that's encouraging for other people. You know, you don't know until you have to have to figure out what helps you. I agree, Megan. I mean, I wasn't doing these things that I was exercising and I ate healthfully, but I was not doing these things when my daughter was one. Uh, and as my body fell apart and grew and was anxious and stressed, I learned I really had to slow down, tune into my body, and that it was okay to do self-care. So I had this thought that self-care was selfish. Right. I, I needed to, it was all about the baby. And I had to learn that you know, it was really about, I had to put my own oxygen mask on first, right? It was about mom self-care, and I didn't know these tools. And uh, I started learning them and have really integrated and incorporated them into my life. And any time I step back from some of them, my body tells me. Yes. And, um, I can feel that even I on vacation, to, like the weeks that are supposed yeah. to be great where, you know, it is, it's great in its own special separate way, but I like getting back to my routine because my routine is what has the self-care sort of built into it, I guess. Right. right. So even just to think about vacation, right? Vacation before you were a mom <laughs> and vacation after being a mom. Yes. Right? We don't even talk about things like that. 
Right. Vacation in air quotes. Yeah. vacation may or may not look like. Right. Let's talk about what your you know, expectations are. What are your partner's expectations about what vacation is going to look like? How can you get and create the space for individual downtime, family downtime, your partner gets downtime? How can it's not going to look like it did before? How can it be, though, when you get some of that? Right. So it's funny you mentioned vacation because it's summer and I'm working mm-hmm. with a lot of my clients on vacation and vacation with your kids is amazing and wonderful right just not like it was without your kids i know people so, i know call it relocation not vacation just relocation yeah yes it's true because and not only you're relocating with all your system set up you know so you got to go and a lot of i mean I don't do this now, but, you know, set up the pack and play, make sure the room's dark enough. Do we need to bring the sound machine? You know, like, how do we transport the milk? You know, it's just, can we yes, bring milk through yes. security? I mean, it's like 150 different things. Absolutely. Yeah. Relocation. Yeah. Is, is, is that what you called it? Relocation. Yes. Relocation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're at an age, your kids are probably at really wonderful traveling ages now. Every year it's getting better. It's like, you know, where I can give them a list and they can pack their own bag. And if they forget something, yeah. well, it was on the list. Sorry about that. You know, I mean, it's just. Exactly. Yeah. And what a great life skill to give your kids. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. You give them their list and they can pack and you just come along and check it. And you're telling them, you can do this. You can be a part of this. This is how we do things. And yay, you, you did it. Right. You know, if you forgot something, it's okay. Right. You'll so live. Right. right. One week without right. socks is fine. Or if it's yeah. an emergency, we can buy a pair. Yeah. Right. Well, I have loved talking to you. You are such an amazing resource. And I am going to make sure I share all of the resources you've mentioned. And I think you're going to be helping more people than you realize by putting this out there in the world. And it's just amazing with all the resources we have now for information that there's still just so much that we don't talk about or that's not easily accessible for people. And that's why I love doing this podcast because this it's it's a free way to get some information that you might really need or that you could share with somebody that you love or a friend and just sort of pass on the information to other people. So thank you so much. I just want to say that there's a lot of really, I am not a researcher. There's a lot of amazing research going on. And in some of the resources that you'll share, um, you know, there's, there's really a ton of support and resources out there. My experience comes from my work as a therapist and my own personal experience. I'm not a researcher. I'm so grateful for the researchers out there, be they social workers or psychologists um, or psychiatrists. Um, so there's so much for people who are interested and want to learn more. Um there's a lot of great, valuable information out there. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything you know on the family brain. And I can't wait to share it with everybody so that people can feel a little less alone in whatever they're going through. The Family Brain is produced by Game Day Media. Executive producers are Megan Gibson, John Largent, and Jason Barrera. Studio producer is Michael Largent. To learn more about the Family Brain podcast, go to Facebook and search The Family Brain.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.